Bases loaded, one down, bottom of the ninth. And McCann will win it with a base hit. Crowd hushes as Quijada turns it loose. Line drive, base hit, Braves win. One pitch ends it. And the Braves have beaten the Marlins again. It is late, Tuesday night into Wednesday morning. I'm about 24 hours or so away from surgery, and I just got back uh, from a Better Than Ezra concert with Anthony. We'll get into all that and more. This is Steve Bennett with episode number 913, season 9, episode 13 of the Sportscasters. Thank you so much uh, for joining me. I know it's been a little bit since I put an episode out, and I really wanted to get this one out. I wanted to do one more. Uh, like I said, I am having surgery on Thursday, uh, the twenty about 24 hours or so after I post this episode. Um, so it's going to be a little bit of a dark blackout period again. And then hopefully when I come back, we'll get into an every seven day or so mode as we get into fall and football and hockey starting up again. Uh, some exciting stuff, I think, planned for the fall. and we be working with Adrian Dater a little bit. Um, actually, tonight, in this episode, one last thing. It's going to be more than one thing. I'll update everyone on the health. I want to talk a little bit about my buddy, Adrian Dater. Uh, I also want to talk about the way people talk on the internet, and if I'm going to do that as a one last thing when we come back. I've been thinking about that so much, and... Really wanting to get into it. Hey, so stick around for that. Also on the show today, Ben Ryder, who was the author of the Astros book that came out a couple years ago. And he did the cover story about predicting the Astros would win the World Series. And, of course, a good friend of this program. He's been on the show for years. He's a Yale grad. Uh, he did a Seven Days with A-Rod uh, as a cover story for the SI where they now issue and I did about about a half an hour with him on that get into a rod get into where are they now talk a little Astros at the beginning he's going to be on first and then a return uh, from Mark Cram Jr. who was the author uh, in 2012 one of the book club books of the month was a book called like any normal day and uh, we worked this book hard and Mark came on and it's really a great book um, and uh he wrote a new book about Joe Frazier, uh, and we did 45 minutes on it. It's a really cool interview. I'll do that after the book club update. Uh, I want to tie up some loose ends with that as we get into another break here. I keep hitting the microphone. I apologize for that. Uh, and then again, one last thing. So that's the uh, the show for today. I watched the Home Run Derby the other night, and Matt, was that awesome? I love that format, and it's going to be one of those Home Run Derbies like we think of the one at Yankee Stadium with Josh Hamilton. And if you ask anyone about that, it's like, oh, yeah, Josh Hamilton won that. It's like, no, he didn't actually win it. Uh, he hit a ton of home runs that night, but didn't actually win it. And I think when we think back on this home run derby 10 years from now, we're going to remember it as, oh, yeah, wasn't it Jock Peterson and 
and uh, Vlad Jr. going back and forth to the championship, and and Vlad won in triple OT, and of course he didn't um, he didn't win it. He lost in the final. But wow, what a great what a great event. Love the format. Just watched a little bit of the All Star game uh, here today. Enjoyed that. Great call by Buck. I love my buddy Joe Buck on that call uh, there. Uh, what else? You know what? I'll go through a bunch of different things in one last thing. It won't be one thing tonight. Just be kind of a, a potpourri of sorts. Um, but I'm excited about this this interview I did with Ben Ryder. So why don't we take a break? Uh, we'll come back with Ben. Then I'll be back on the other side of that for the book club update. Then we'll talk to Mark. And then we'll... Uh, We'll close off the first half of this year of podcasts uh, with one last thing as I get ready for surgery number two of 2019. Uh, That's the show for today. Uh, Thank you, as always, for listening at sports underscore casters for updates. Let's take a break. We'll be back with Ben Ryder. Our next guest is a friend of the program. He's from New Jersey, and he is a graduate of Yale University. He just spent seven days with A-Rod, and he's here to talk to us about it. A warm sportscaster's welcome to our friend, Ben Ryder. What's up, Ben? How you doing, buddy? Good, Steve. How are you? Very good. Very good. Welcome back. It's been a bit. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. Always good to speak with you. Hey, I was thinking about it because it came up in my uh, column the other day. My timeline, I mean. Was that Astros column just like the gift that will never stop giving for your career? <laughs> well, uh, I guess it was this cover came out five years ago, the one in which we pr- predicted yeah. that the then terrible Astros would win the World Series in 2017. Of course, they did. Of course, after that, I wrote a book about it, which has now come out just about a year ago called Astro Ball. I don't know. I don't know if it's a gift at this point. It's certainly something that has carried much longer than I thought it would. And it also kind of made you the guy of something. You know what I mean? Like, um, like James Andrew <laughs> Miller. Guy. Yeah, James Andrew Miller is the ESPN guy. Anything happens at ESPN, everyone's scrambling to get Miller to come talk, right? If anything happens, mm-hmm. um, who else is like a guy of something? I'm trying to think of a few. I don't know. That one comes to mind right away. I know there's others because we've had him on before and talked to him about mm-hmm. it. But, yeah, you're like the Astros guy, right? Anything goes on with that organization or that team, let's go to Ben. Let's see what Ben thinks, you know? A draft yeah, maybe like Brian Windhorst. Brian Windhorst is the, Le- the LeBron guy, stuff like that. Okay, yeah, very um, good. Yep. Look, I think, to be honest, there's people who spend a lot more time covering the Astros than I do. Uh, but that story coming out when it did – positioning the team as it did and then actually coming true, certainly there's going to be some resonance there, and I think there probably will be for a long time. Jane Levy is not the Babe Ruth guy. So I squeeze that one in. No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, A-Rod. So you, every year, aside is one of my favorite issues of the year, the where are they now issue. And um, A-Rod is uh, kind of the most prominent one in this year's. And uh, you spent a week with him. Uh, Just kind of real generically, like, what is it like to spend a week 
in in Alex's world. I mean, I know that's kind of what the article is about, but just kind of in a more, you know, big picture sense. Like, what is it like to be in A Rod's world? <laughs> well, to be clear, it was a week's worth of time, right? It not wasn't like consecutive Monday right. through right. Sunday or something. Right. It was seven days over the course of, I think, about three months. What you what my main takeaway is, and there's a lot of takeaways. It's like a 5,500 word story of them, but uh, just how hard the guy goes every day. I mean, I kept saying to him, you made almost half a billion dollars in your career by the time you were 40, 41 years old. You know, obviously you'd, your reputation had plummeted, had come back a little bit. seemed like when you were retired, you were in a pretty good place. What most people just chill at that point. You know, like you've been in the public eye for so long, it's been difficult for you. Wouldn't you just kind of, you know, play some golf, take a little time off, be a private citizen for a while? That is absolutely not what Alex Rodriguez does. He legitimately, as I write in the story, works 80 to 100 hour weeks running A-Rod Corps, doing his podcast. He's got a full weekend job with ESPN. He just goes and goes and goes. He's somebody, as I write in the story, who's always wanted more, more, more. And I think that does something to start to explain both his incredible baseball gifts and his baseball transgressions as well when you think about it. Yeah, as I was reading the story, I was like trying to figure out, I'm like, I wonder if Baden is going to conclude that this is just the way the guy is wired or that he's chasing something. Um and it can't be money because it seemed like you kind of lean towards the he's chasing something um, theory. And it can't be money because he's got plenty of that. And it can't be fame because he's got plenty of that. Did you ever kind of get a – like what is it he's looking for exactly, do you think? <laughs> I think he doesn't know. I don't okay. think there's an end game, at least one that he can articulate. I would say he's just chasing more. You know, like some people are like this. It's There's always more money. There's always more power. Uh, you know, there's always more for him in particular, admiration. He's somebody that always wanted to be liked, and we could see that throughout his whole career, and he just wasn't for so long. Now he's gotten to this place uh, where he is, not by everybody, of course, but where he's kind of this admired figure. You know, people admire his broadcasting. They admire him for being engaged to Jayla. They admire, they admire his business sense. Um, and he just feeds off of this, and he wants more, and he broadcasts it on social media, and then he gets that feedback. It's just this cycle of more and more and more. I don't think he has a goal. You know, at one point I asked him in the story, are we going to see you in politics? Like, this seems like, it's starting to feel like this is where this is headed, like to the White House or something. And he's like, never, never. That's the last thing I'd ever want. And then he thought about it for a minute. He's like, huh, that's a good question. So I don't know, maybe. Not enough money in that. Uh, too many critics. <laughs> well, there's not supposed to be <laughs> right. enough money in it, right. but quote know, unquote, right. we know what's happening now. Right. Uh, the, um, you know, I think the ad- admiration thing is is really big. At least it's kind of what I took about it. I think I've always felt that way about him. Like he wants to be loved. You know, he always was looking from third to shortstop and saying, "Why don't they love me like they love him?" Right at his time with the Yankees, or you know, whatever the case might be. But I wonder. Like, if we look at his post-career, I'm curious what you think about this. Like, okay, he, he hit really, really good on the studio show um, when he started TV with Fox. He was really good at it. And then I feel like 
Now that's kind of taken a hit. People don't like that Sunday night baseball booth that much. Um, and then it seems like a lot of this popularity has come through J-Lo and, and being around her and the attention she brings. And if she gets sick of him like she has many men over the, over her lifetime, you think that would be a huge blow to this resurgence for him? I guess what I'm asking in a strange way is like how much of his resurgence do you credit to being J-Lo's beau or whatever? I think it's a good portion of it. I think they've been good for each other. You know, they're, they're, as far as their public recognition and admiration, and they're pretty open about it. You know, she has been somebody who for two decades now has navigated this world of celebrity and fame and image without too many missteps and without too many, like, significant drops in popularity. Like, yeah, there's been turbulence. Some of her records haven't been popular, but she's continually pivoted to other things and maintained her popularity and you know her reputation right like every who she is is very strongly defined in the public and she keeps it up he's not been able to do that right i mean his as we know his reputation just swung wildly and at least towards the end of his baseball career for the last decade or so was pretty low but he does have strong business sense and he's built this company a rod corp that owns like ten thousand apartments and shares in 20 companies um you know he's friends with all these titans of business and stuff so he's got a business mind she's got kind of a real strong idea of some of the uh, softer aspects of being a celebrity like how to position yourself in the public eye and i think together their skill sets are really complementary uh so yeah i mean certainly certainly if they broke up it would be a hit but in this game i think in this world i should say when, when you've attained a certain level of fame, uh, you know, you kind of keep it on some level. So he's already there. Yeah, like you kind of mentioned, like, oh, J Lo maybe had an album that didn't do good. And I was thinking she didn't. You know, like, I have no idea, really. I don't really know how good her movies were. I know she's in them, and I know she did music. But to me, in my mind, she's just more famous for being J Lo than anything, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, and and I wonder if that's kind of maybe the best for A Rod to kind of position himself in that way, right? Like. As a baseball player, he was never going to be as loved as Derek Jeter, and maybe his fairly or unfairly his reputation took a hit with the um, with the steroid scandal. But if he could just be famous for being him, that'd be great because he is charming and handsome and rich, and that just seems like a better path for him for some reason. Yeah, I think that's what he's transitioning into: famous for being famous, right? right. Kind yeah, of a Kardashian model. And I spoke to somebody who covered him every single day when he was with the Yankees and he said, yeah, that's what he thinks he's becoming famous for being famous. And it's interesting. I spent a day with him at Yankee stadium when he went back, when they were doing ESPN Yankees Red Sox game. And yeah, there of course people know that he was a baseball player and a great baseball player, but all the specific issues that afflicted him don't seem relevant at all anymore. You know, I watched him go into the Red Sox clubhouse Everybody's swarming him. He's hugging everybody. This is in the Red Sox clubhouse where he was once absolutely hated. It just doesn't matter anymore. I mean, he's A-Rod, the famous public figure, and I think that that's working a lot better for him than A-Rod, the baseball player, did, at least as far as everything not having to do with, like, hitting baseball. I was thinking about this, too. We were talking about – I was talking, I guess, a little bit about the 
A-Rod, Jeter thing, like him looking over. It's interesting in their post-careers how the popularity of A-Rod has soared and Jeter's kind of taken a hit as this, you know, president who gave away Stanton and is killing the Marlins and just kind of not really liked as much as he used to be, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, look, I obviously asked Alex about this, uh, and he would say, you know, I respect Derek. He's a winner. I respect winners. If I saw him, I'd give him a big hug. But he wouldn't go there. But I would absolutely gamble that he is not disappointed by the complete flipping of the images of those two guys. (laughs) (laughs) Images that had seemed completely set in stone forever, and clearly now in the past five years, uh, we're not, we're not. Yeah, I don't think he's bumming about that. It's uh, like you said, a five thousand word story, and the where you know issue of Sports Illustrated, really great. Give me a couple quick anecdotes that didn't make it. I'm sure there's a few that many days with a Rod. Give me a couple couple things you noticed or you wanted to put in that didn't quite make it because people can read this. I don't want to give too much of it away. Um, <laughs> but uh, what do you got that missed it? Oh, man, there's a lot of stuff. You know, one thing that I wanted to write about, and this might almost be a whole separate story, is the team that he has, kind of like his staff that right. keeps him going every day. He lives a crazy life. He, he flies 500 hours a year on his Gulfstream jet. 500 hours is a huge number of hours. It's like three out of the 52 weeks in the air. But he's got this enormous team that's with him, like, at all times, keeping A-Rod Corp going. His COO is a guy named Jeff Lee, who's a brilliant guy, very interesting guy. He's a graduate of Yale Law School, Stanford Business School, worked for like three white shoe New York law firms, and now spends all of his days essentially traveling around with A-Rod, advising him on business and stuff. Uh, So that whole side of things, the A-Rod's team is fascinating. But man, there's just so much stuff that I couldn't include. Like I, I sat in as he did a podcast of his bar school, bar stool podcast with Kevin Bacon. I don't think it's out yet, but it should be a really good one. I mean, just the sheer number of famous people whom A-Rod meets in the course of a day, a week is astonishing. You know, I saw him at Jimmy Fallon, meet Jimmy Fallon. I saw him with Kevin Bacon, saw him with Reggie Jackson. Uh, he, I talked to Warren Buffett about him. He can basically meet anybody in the world he wants to. And he's certainly taking advantage of that. How much did you talk to him just about baseball? Like, is he like, like, is he like, if you think about your grandfather, someone that you just see in the garage, like my one grandfather, he, he always would set up his garage for the summer. And anytime you go in there and sit down at the table with them, the Yankees game would be on and you just kind of talk like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, third baseman sucks this year, whatever, you know, like, is he that kind of guy? Can you just shoot the shit about baseball with them? Like, what is it like to just talk about the game with A-Rod? Totally. You know, one of the pillars of his reinvention is that he's always been a baseball geek and that he's always loved baseball no matter what. And I think that's true. You know, when I was with him, especially when it was the evening, he constantly had his iPad in his hand watching usually the Yankees, but sometimes if the Yankees game was over, just whatever baseball game happened to be on the West Coast. You know, we were on J-Lo's movie set in lower Manhattan where she was filming this movie Hustlers. Uh, that's coming out, I guess, uh, maybe later this year. And, you know, he's got the headphones on. He's really paying attention. But in his lap, he's got the Yankees game going out on the West Coast. Every TV in every one of his houses is constantly tuned to MLB Network or ESPN or Fox Sports. I, I think that's real. 
and he certainly has insights into baseball that very few people can provide. Do you think he considers himself a Yankee? Like, you know, if he goes in the totally. Hall of, yeah, okay, so he's hundred percent. I think it's a big part of his brand as well. And in fact, he'll tell you that when he retired slash the Yankees retired him, as you remember, they did in the middle of the season uh, when he was at 696 homers, he had two offers, including one from the Marlins. He wouldn't tell me who the other team was for him to come and play with them and presumably get to uh, 700 with them. But he turned them down. I mean, he says this is because, you know, this is how he knew for himself that he was done. He was ready to move on. But I'm pretty sure that he recognized that the value going forward of retiring as a Yankee and maintaining that improbable tie, given everything that had come before it, uh, was worth it. And I think he's right about that. All right. I'm going to try to get this out right. I don't know if I'm talented enough for this. I have a thought in my head. I'm going to try to turn it into a question. How is A-Rod with you in the sense of, like, do you think he, you could be buddies with A-Rod? Like, is he a guy who can be a friend of Ben? And I don't mean that as, like, anything <laughs> against you. I I just more of, like, I look at A-Rod as, like, this guy who's almost in a different world, kind of. Like, he just and, – and I feel like he lives in that world, like, A-Rod world or something. Like, I picture him as a guy who I don't know if he's on time or not, but, like, it seems like it may be hard because he doesn't even acknowledge that there's a clock or something like that. Like, do you think he – how do you think he viewed you? Did he like you being around? Do you, like, how, what do you think? Of, how would you describe the interpersonal relationship between A-Rod and you? <laughs> it's a fascinating question. And it's a fascinating dynamic being a reporter who spends so much time in the life of somebody like this. Um, I will say that he is very interested in what everybody around him does. I think he's somebody who feels like he missed this great chance to understand how the word re- world really works when he was younger because he went immediately from high school to major league baseball. Uh, he did, he feels like he missed out on this developmental stage. So everybody he meets, he asks a ton of questions, you know, how their world works. And stuff like that. <laughs> Look, I mean, he's a very curious guy. Um, he can be a very generous guy. I drove around in the car with him for many hours. Uh, he can keep a conversation going. I don't know. You know, I wasn't in there to with him. I was, I was really some part of the way to doing that in the story. Is he a good father? What, what kind of father did you get the sense he was? I think that he's very devoted to them. I can there's Natasha and Ella who are 14 and 11, are extremely devoted to him. Uh, I had think about... He splits custody with his ex-wife, Cynthia. Uh, he's certainly very devoted to them. He cares about them. He wants to be part of their lives. He's very proud of them. Um, but I do know that their mother, who I spoke to as well for the story... Cynthia also has a big role in instilling values in the girls. And to be quite honest, like they're very impressive girls. Like they don't seem at all kind of, uh, I don't know, in, overly influenced by who their dad is, who their future stepmom is. You know, they're good students. They're polite. 
uh, seems like whatever they're doing is working. Uh, the sports guys are here with Ben Ryder. You can find him on Twitter. He's at Ben R E I T E R. Uh, of course, his book Astro Ball is still out there and available. A great look at the Astros team that was put together, uh, eventually winning the 2017 World Series. A uh, couple more quick ones, and I'll let you go, Ben. Um, he, he, this is a guy. He's got his own plane. He flies on his own plane. I'm sure he's got massive houses. You say he's always working. Uh, he loves baseball. What else does he do for fun? Does he have hobbies? Like, I don't know. What else? Does he... <laughs> I asked him that. He's like, I wish I played more golf. I wish I liked to go boating. I think he works. I, I, I think that's what he does. He goes to a lot okay. of award shows, which he says are fun. As we know, I write about the Oscars in particular in the yeah. story. He watches a lot of baseball. You know, you follow him on social media. You see what he does. He's at Wimbledon this weekend. Uh, he's at all the major events. I think like fun for him, probably the most fun thing he can do is take his jet, fly to Omaha, Nebraska, and like have lunch with Warren Buffett, which he does periodically. Like, that is probably the most fun that Alex Rodriguez can have, which says a lot about him. Uh, <laughs> what do you think, like as a baseball player, you're always like trying to win the World Series, right? What's the... What's the thing – I don't know if we already kind of covered this with, like, what he's chasing, but, like, what's the ultimate goal on a daily basis for A-Rod? Is there a trophy he's trying to win, so to speak? No. Or, no? I don't think so. I mean, a lot of people – or some people have asked why I didn't write about the Hall of Fame in this story. And First of all, because I get a little Hall of Famed out personally. Right. And second, because it was a little uh, – you know, he – wasn't that interesting when I asked him about it. He's like, I would love to get in the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, I understand I've made mistakes and how I've hurt myself, and I have to be able to live with the results one way or another. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. So I think he would love to be in the Hall of Fame, but again, it's just more, more, more with that now being one of the things he's aiming for. He should be in. These guys should be in. That's ridiculous. He, I mean, he now, look. He will be eventually, right? So right. will Bond, so will Clemens. We're seeing it trend that way. We're seeing baseball culture not caring as much about PED use as it did in the past. Like, nobody's talking about it at all this year. You have several players on contending teams who have recently been suspended for using them, like the Twins with Jorge Polanco and Nelson Cruz. Nobody ever mentions that whatsoever. I guess it's fatigue. I guess it's kind of like the outrage is gone. But I think that's helping his cause as well going forward. So is obviously his incredible reinvention in the public eye. How close is this to being like the most interesting story you've ever done? Is it in the top <sighs> couple percent? Is it's it in the up middle? there. Yeah. It, it, it's certainly up there. I, I would say it's the longest I've spent with a subject, which is interesting in itself and kind of gets you to depths that uh, perhaps you haven't done, you haven't reached before. I would say, you know, my story in the death of a decade, Rabu, similar effort with as far as really diving into the psyche of a subject, although it was very different, obviously, because the subject was, in that case, deceased. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr. story from a couple years ago. I, th I think I'm like the where are they now guy this year. I think <laughs> I've had like three straight three straight where are they now covers. So we'll see uh, see if that continues next year. Do you, as, a, as a writer, do you look at A-Rod and say, man, there's a great book in this guy. I hope I hope when he's ready to write his story, he finds the right guy or whatever. Like, Do you think there's a great A-Rod book out there? I'm not sure. I don't know about that. Okay. Um, 
I, I'm sure there could be, uh, but hmm, I think that you know, I think this is probably as far as he would go. I think that he's somebody who would probably want to uh, control what the book is himself. So we would see how that turns out. In this case, in this case, he had no control whatsoever over the story, uh, except as far as kind of allowing me to tag along. I'm not sure if he'd do that for a much longer uh, product like a book. Did he ever shut you out? Like, did he ever say like, "Hey Ben, go in the other room or go over there," or anything like that? Or did you truly have him like while you were there? I mean, yeah, there were certain business meetings where it's like, "All right, I got to do this thing. I'll meet up with you uh, later this afternoon." Okay. But really, it was just an extraordinary amount of time, and I think it's reflected in the story. Uh, if he called you tomorrow and said, "Hey Ben," Come out to Miami. Let's talk. I want you to be the one to write, write the A Rod book. Would you do it? <laughs> I'd certainly take the meeting with him, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but there'd be a long a long distance between that meeting and uh, a finished product, or at least the beginning of a product. Even. All right. Very last thing, and I'll let you out of here on this, and and, and I'll, I'll, I'll I'll the the A Rod story is amazing. Please uh, check it out. Uh, it's in Sports Illustrated's Where Are They Now issue. Uh, it's available if you have an iPad. Because um, I love reading the magazine this way, I think it should be more popular than it is. And you download the Sports Illustrated, download the Sports Illustrated app, um, and subscribe. It's, it's cheap as dirt, and uh, the magazine looks amazing on there. Um, so I'd suggest that uh, if you're interested in reading the magazine that way. Uh, but very last thing, uh, a Rod aside, real quickly, it's about All Star Break time. It's about halfway through the Major League Baseball season. As we get into the second half of the season, what are you most excited to see play out? What things or stories or teams? Are you most excited to see unfold between now and the playoffs? Well, I mean, I'm certainly trying to see what the Astros are doing. We started Astro started, started yep. this discussion talking about how I'm the Astro guy. Um, it is interesting, not just that they won in 2017, but that they've continued to build this contender every single year, which is really what the goal was. It wasn't to win that one World Series. Well, winning is obviously the ultimate goal. They wanted to build a team that could contend every year. And here they are uh, yet again, yet again dealing with kind of more than their fair share of injuries. But, uh, you know, obviously I'll be following them. The other one is really just like, what's going to happen in this demolition derby in the National League? Except, I guess, apart from the Dodgers who are running away with this thing, and it's all of a sudden looking like the Braves, Braves are about yeah. to do similarly. Yep. There's about, what, 10 teams behind them, all with a shot at the playoffs. It's going to be fascinating to see how that thing pans out here in the next month and also how the single early trade deadline, July 31st, uh, affects it as well. Do you have a team in that group of NL teams that you think is best suited for a run if they make it? Like, Is there a team you're like, Oh, if the Cubs get in, or oh, if the Cardinals, or whatever team it is, is there one you think could stand out the most? I guess, like, <laughs> this is not as a fan, but as an analyst, I'm sort of like a Nationals diehard. Okay. Right? I, still, I still can't believe that they have gotten this far without having won a playoff series. Right. I can't believe how bad <laughs> they were at the beginning of this year. But still, like, when I look at the parts that they have, like they're as good as anybody in the National League, the Dodgers included. And somehow, some way, I feel like they're someday going to figure out how to be at least the sum of their parts, if not more than the sum of their parts. And perhaps that'll be in these next few months here. 
I still can't believe they shut down Strasburg that one year. Like, because they just thought they'd make the playoffs every single year and they just didn't need them. And all these years later, they still haven't even won a series. I know. Amazing. All right, Ben, thank you so much for all this time. Um, anything else you want to plug? <laughs> I think I think I probably plugged plugged enough, Steve. All right, thanks, uh, thanks again for having me on, as, as always. All right, talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Oh, could have used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high I want to thank Ben Ryder for being on the podcast today. I always love having Ben on the show. Appreciate that. Ben, of course, was the author of a book called Book of the Month a few years ago when Astro Ball came out. And Ben joined us to talk about that book and, of course, his prediction at SI. Ah, book club. Let's clean up some things. In a minute, we're going to take a break, and I'm going to be joined by Mark Cram Jr. I mentioned in the open uh, that Mark is the author of a former book club book of the month called Like Any Normal Day. Uh, in his new book, Smoke and Joe, The Life of Joe Frazier, uh, we'll talk about that in a minute with Mark. I never did get to hook up with Blake J. Harris. He's been incredibly patient with me, and I think I've been patient with him, and I think a few times we've had interview on the books, and then one of us had to push it back or change it, and it just didn't work out. But at some point, I'm going to track down Blake, and we're going to talk about his book, The History of the Future, uh, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution That's Up Virtual Reality. I really want to get to Blake. We'll talk to him soon. Highest of thank yous to him for his patience. Uh, also, a guy named Greg Inkpen reached out to me and said, Hey, I got this book called Brof On and Off the Ice with John Brophy, one of hockey's most colorful characters. And I haven't had him on yet because I haven't had a chance to read the book. And I hate bringing a guy in, especially someone who worked as hard as he did on this book um, and not even reading it. So I'm going to bring him with me to the hospital um, and maybe I'll get some reading in there um, or while I'm recovering. Uh, but hopefully... We'll be able to have Greg on soon to talk about this because I know he worked hard on it and he was nice enough to reach out to me and to send me a copy. Uh, so I'll get Greg on at some point, hopefully if he's available. Uh, don't forget a couple episodes ago we had Jason Turbo on to talk They Bleed Blue about the 1981 Los Angeles Dodgers. That's a great book. Man, I really like that. I'm really glad the publisher thought of me and sent that to me So I probably wouldn't have found it either way, but... That's where the book club stands as we head into this break here. Um, I feel pretty good about where I'm leaving it because, like I said, Blake's a friend. I know we'll get to Blake and we'll talk to him. And I want to do Greg justice and his book justice. So I'm going to take it with me and hopefully I can read some of it in the hospital or read it over in my recovery. We'll get him on one of the first um, episodes back. But uh Let's do this. Let's clear the desk a little bit. Let's talk to Mark Cram Jr. Again, his book is called Smoke and Joe, The Life of Joe Frazier. Uh, my copy of it is spoken for. My friend Calvin's going to take this. So I got to send that off to him. If I owe you a book, if I promised you a book and I didn't send it to you, please remind me because uh, I know there's a few of you out there. There's a few I think I promised back on Christmas 
I still owe books to, which is just awful on my part. But if you can just remind me if I owe you one, uh, or if you're interested in a copy of the um, the book that uh, Blake wrote, The History of the Future, or maybe if you want my copy of this Dodgers book, I can send that off to you. Uh, but email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. All right, with all that said, let's take a break, and let's come back with Mark Cram Jr. <laughs> next guest today is a six-time member of the Best American Sports Writing and now a two-time author of the Sportscasters Book Club Book of the Month. He's a graduate of Maryland, a warm sportscasters. Welcome to the talented Mark Cram Jr. Welcome back, Mark. How are you doing today? I'm doing swell. How are you doing? Really excited to uh, have you back. I'm doing really well. Um, I was mentioning to the listeners that this is the second book we featured from you in the the book club book of the month. And the first one was like any normal day, which is one of my favorite books um, in the history of the book club. Uh, one of the really great touching stories. And we were kind of tough talking off air. Any updates on that book? Um, anything about it you want to well, mention? Well, it's, uh, it's uh, still under option after what, seven years since it came out. Uh, so it, you know, quite possibly could be made into a film it's still under option for that and uh so i have my fingers crossed um i think it would make a heck of a movie um so uh uh that's uh basically where that is at this point well you almost can't pick two stories more different than like uh any normal day and smoking joe the life of joe frazier i want to ask you this kind of right off the top uh I always tell people if they say like, hey, what's your favorite sports book? One of the first ones I always go to is the first Mike Tyson book that he wrote uh, just because it's such a fascinating story. And then there is this lineage of like Rocky films, right? And then the Creed. And then now I was reading your book and I was thinking about this. And maybe you have some insight here. What makes these guys just so fascinating? Like – as as regardless of how popular boxing might be in the moment, um, right. there's always such fascinating stories to tell. Whether it's like I heard uh, Russell Crowe on Stern yesterday, they were talking about what was his movie, uh, Cinderella Man, I think it was called. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just we could go on and on, right? I mean, having done this book, you have any insight there? Like, what makes boxing and boxers just so fascinating? Well, I have a theory on that. It has to do with the fact that boxers have always been accessible and very uh, accessible to writers, and they've, uh, you know, told their stories. Uh, uh, you know, they always have interesting backstories. Uh, you know, they usually have come up from hard circumstances. Uh, but the main thing is accessible. Joe Frazier, for instance. You didn't have to go to a publicist or through a publicist to to find Joe Frazier. All you had to do was go up to North Broad Street, knock on the door, and he would have uh, time for you. Uh, and uh, you could sit and talk with him. You know, can you imagine uh, 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 an internationally known athlete uh, in any other sport that you'd be able to to connect with that way? And that's just not writers, fans, people uh, from the street. You know, he was a man of the people, and 
and and in the sense that uh, boxers all share that quality. You know, uh, uh, there's a fraternity among them, and uh, they just you know away from the ring, inside the ring. You know, it's a, often thought of as an inhumane uh, exhibition, but outside the ring, I've always found them to be very humane, and in that respect, they connect with people. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's almost like a yin and yang of the boxer, right? Like inside the ring, they're such warriors and they're so vicious and they have such a brutal game in front of them. But then, like you said, the accessibility of them. Um, I, I don't know if you remember Baby Joe Macy, but he's actually kind of a prominent fighter from Buffalo uh, for a little bit. No, and, I, I don't. I'm sorry. Yeah, he was building towards a Tyson fight. And then he, I think, had some concussion issues or whatever. But, like, just one day I'm at a clam bake. And, like, there's baby Joe Macy just walking around, talking to people. Yeah, you know, it looks like we might get a Tyson fight, you know. And, uh, you know, hey, do you put hot sauce on your clam? You know, just like, I don't know. It, it, you yeah, look- I mean, they're, they're regular guys, you right. know. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've been around them for most of my life. And uh, I've always found them to be the case. Uh uh, there's a certain warmth about them in most cases. There are exceptions, of course, but uh, and the other thing that uh, is quite interesting, uh, Steve, is that you know, in researching the book, I was able to go back to the uh, papers from the six, '60s and '70s, the uh, uh, Philadelphia Daily News and the Philadelphia Bulletin, and of course the Inquirer. And it's extraordinary uh, the the uh, relationship that the writers had to Joe uh, at that time. Uh, they wrote about him just about all the time. You know, they always brought their A game. And uh, I just was thinking today, if someone 25 years ago wanted to do a biography of Bryce Harper, you know, the Phillies uh, outfielder, mm-hmm. you know, megastar, they would have nothing to draw on. The writer at that time would have nothing to draw on. You know, he's not being written about in any intimate way, uh, the, the way Joe was. Uh, and that was the that was the whole the whole thing. That to a large extent, that's how you know sports writing has really changed and actually become diminished, in my view. You know, um, so anyway, why uh, why Joe Frazier? Why right now? What was it about him? Of all the boxes, well, well, he lived a, a fascinating life that had gone largely unexplored in you know, in any kind of depth. Um, of course, my father had written Ghost of Manila uh, in 2001, uh, but it was uh, it was kind of an essayist, essayistic approach, you know, based on his years of reporting at Sports Illustrated. Uh, Joe died in uh, 2011, uh, so he lived another 10 years. And there wasn't anything that was a kind of complete document uh, about Joe's life, nothing that was comprehensive. And you really can't tell the story of the Ali years without really diving deeply into Frazier. Um, uh, You know, he had come up from uh, the Jim Crow South uh, uh, in extreme poverty. You know, Buford, South Carolina was... uh, was uh, one of the poorest areas of the country. Uh, malnutrition, disease, uh, all sorts of, uh, uh, of problems, uh, you know, down there. Um, his father was a was a handyman, come bootlegger, 
Joe, he would often take Joe out into the, out into the woods in the early morning and, um, and, uh, cook up the, 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 uh, corn liquor, you know, they used to pick foggy days that they used to do it on foggy mornings. So the smoke wouldn't, you know, rising up from the still wouldn't uh, attract the attention of the, of the police, which were always on the lookout of these sorts of things. His mother picked, uh, picked vegetables in the, in the field. She was, a she was a, a farmhand, uh, tough, brutal work, you know, and, uh, he, uh, he, it was the kind of environment where, as he said in his autobiography, you know, Buford never got tired of reminding me that I was an N-word. And uh, so, you know, it's he had a fascinating, he made himself into really an extraordinary figure uh, uh, coming out of that background. Yeah, it was interesting to me because in my head, going into the book, I always thought of him as like a Philly guy. You know, I had no idea he had roots in the South and his background was rooted in there. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was part of that migration, um, African African American migration out of the out of the South, you know, through the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and uh, he came to Philly in 1959, or came north in 1959. Initially to New York, where he lived with some family. He took the Greyhound bus at age 15, and he, uh, you know, got into, you know, he's flirting with danger and trouble up there. He was stealing cars with a friend, just selling them for parts and. So his family sent him down to Philly to live with a, a sister. And, uh, you know, she told him, look, if you get in trouble down here, there's nothing I can do for you. But why don't you go over to the Police Athletic League with the idea that, you know, he'd come under the influence of the local cops. So he did. You know, he was 30 pounds overweight, couldn't fit into any of his clothes. He was, you know, gotten heavy and chubby. And, and uh, so he went over there, and they soon found out that he had uh, dynamite in his left hook. <laughs> he, you know, he hit the heavy bag, and one of the trainers who was there that day told me, uh, you could hear it across the street when he hit the bag. So, I mean, uh, so he was really, uh, uh, it was off to the races at that point. I was really fascinated by his run to the Olympics in 64. He won the gold medal in the heavyweight in Tokyo in 64, but he had this rival in New York um, who I had never heard of, obviously, but Buster Mathis. And he had had a hilarious quote because it was interesting to me that they made them fight in headgear and use 10 pound gloves, even though, or is it an ounce, a pound, Uh, even though, um, you know, in the Olympics, there was no headgear and eight ounce gloves. And then, and then he loses the decision and he was pissed off. And there was a quote. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Quote I wrote down. Where is it here? I thought it was funny. Uh, where is this quote? Uh, he was talking about Mathis, all aggravated that Mathis beat him in the in the fight on a decision, and he said all that fat boy had done was run like a thief, hit me with a pack, and backpedal like crazy. Yeah, right. Well, Buster was an amiable. He was a huge guy, really. Uh... Uh, what was uh, 350 pounds or more? You know, he was always battling his weight, and but he was an amiable guy, kind of a good-natured guy, and uh, um, and but he, you know, he uh, he he had beaten Joe. He more or less smothered him with his uh, with his size. Uh, although their writers at the there that day thought that 
Joe had outpointed him and beaten him, uh, and that he had gotten unfairly uh, uh, lost an unfair decision. Uh, but Buster uh, hurt his uh, hurt his hand, and uh, he couldn't perform in the Olympics. And Joe stepped in as a substitute, and uh, really just you know mowed down his opponents in Tokyo. Yeah, because you even say in the book that he was so frustrated at the time that he almost quit boxing. That he was telling people he was just going to go back to Philly and get a job. Um, right. Well, he had a job in Philly. You know, he worked at a slaughterhouse. You know, and that that's become sort of glamorized in the in the Rocky story, right? So, uh, but think of it. Those those jobs in those uh, uh, slaughterhouses, dirty, filthy work. Uh, you know, uh, cold all the time. You're dealing with uh, sharp knives, uh, uh, unruly cattle, and uh, I mean, it's just I'm really, really a, as really a rough, rough uh, job that he had. Of course, when he came back, he broke his hand and, uh, or rather, his thumb in the Olympics, and so he came back with a cast on his hand, so he couldn't take his job, you know, back with the, the slaughterhouse. So he was sort of, you know, uh, he was really uh poor he had no money he had a he had a young family and uh but philly you know they sort of rallied to his uh aid at the christmas time that year and sort of lavished him with presents it was like something out of a frank capra movie you know i mean sort of uh you know he was even then he was uh i mean the city really kind of uh Rolled their, you know, uh, rolled out the red carpet for him that way. Yeah, and it wasn't it like local Philly businessmen that kind of pooled some money together. Um, I think Larry Merchant even was one of them, so he could start his career and train full time. Right, he bought one share. It was a, a group called Cloverlay, and uh, it was made up of local businessmen, forty of them who chipped it all together, twenty thousand dollars to get Joe off and running, but they also took care of a lot of his other, uh, you know, needs. Uh, they, uh, they arranged for him to get a, to buy a house, uh, in a nice neighborhood. Uh, uh, they took, made sure that his taxes were done and that a lot of the details related to his career, you know, which have, has sort of undermined a lot of fighters, not, you know, cr- dotting your I's and crossing your T's. So they took care of all that. So all he had to do was fight. And, uh, but, uh, so they were really a, uh, uh, they gave him a leg up. And, uh, of course, he had the trainer, Yank Durham, who was, uh, really, uh, uh, who, who later brought in Eddie Futch in a really smart move. And, uh, you know, he really had a good team around him. Yeah, there's actually a good picture in the book of, um, of Joe and the, the Cloverlay team. Um, yeah. 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 Well, you know the interesting thing is, Steve, you could only be a um, uh, uh, a citizen of uh, Pennsylvania to invest in Joe. Uh, uh, it was kind of a localized. Uh, they didn't want outsiders coming in. I mean, remember during that time in boxing, uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, you know gangsters roaming around, and uh, there was uh, scandals and so forth and so on. And they didn't want uh, that sort of influence coming in, coming in from outside and and uh, and uh, corrupting the the environment. Uh, interestingly enough, because they had a rule that it was only Pennsylvanians, 
that uh, George Romney, who had been a huge fan of of, of Joe Frazier, uh, was denied an opportunity to buy a stock. He was George Romney, of course, was uh, Mitt Romney's father. He was governor of uh, Michigan at one point, and uh, he was always calling Cloverley and saying, "You know, how's Joe doing? You sure you can't sell me a stock right. piece, piece of him?" So you know, he had. Uh, uh, you know, he had a lot of, uh, I mean, his his profile raised rather sharply during the late 60s. Yeah, and how was he doing? He was doing great, right? He races out to, what, 26-0 and 0 or so before the first fight of the century uh, with Ali, who I think had just sort of started to come back, what, about a year beforehand? Um, and what I found interesting, which I didn't realize, is that was the first first. Let me get this right. The first fight between undefeated champions, or undef- yeah, the first fight between undefeated champions, and it, there wouldn't be another one until Tyson and Spinks in '88, which is like the first fight I really remember. I remember it being so hyped up. I remember going to watch oh, it. Oh my yes, yeah, yeah and thinking yeah. like, wow, that was it, huh? <laughs> wow, he beat him what in what? 80, 89 seconds or something. Well, a little background on yeah. that. I mean, they had been uh, uh, there had been talk of. Uh, of uh, arranging a fight between Joe and Ali uh, prior to uh, Joe's uh, or uh, Ali's uh, exile from the ring for evading the draft. They were talking about doing it in uh, the spring of 67, I think it was, uh, so Ali could get one last fight in. Had that happened, uh, uh, I think Ali would have uh, handled Joe uh, uh, rather easily. You know, I don't think... Joe would have had much shot against Ali at that time. Now, uh, in the intervening years, a kind of a drama kind of uh, unfolded, you know, with, uh, you know, Ali was uh, justly uh, denied his opportunity to earn a living, uh, you know, and uh, was really down at his heels. He, He sort of didn't have much money. Joe lent him money during that period, which was sort of given, keeping with Joe's generous nature. But Ali was a pest uh, to Joe. He, was, he actually moved to Philadelphia during his exile and um, was always uh, showing up at public events and, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, poking fun at Joe and uh, sort of just irritating him. And uh, Joe got so furious at one point that uh, <laughs> he was... Uh, you know, unloading some musical equipment from in front of the Academy of Music. He was he then had his singing group, the Knockouts. Ali came around the corner with like fifty people surrounding, uh, uh, following him, and shouting, uh, "Joe Frazier, Joe Frazier!" And it was an early Sunday morning, and and Joe just he was like sweating bullets, and he reached for a tire iron in his truck in his in the truck of his car, and was going to you know take it you know. Uh, Wow. Take Ali on, uh, and Joe Hand, uh, who was the uh, uh, kind of uh, was a associate of Joe, you know, stepped in and said, "No, Joe, stop it." He said, "If if he hadn't stepped in, there would never would have been a fight of the century. It would have been settled there on the street." Now, I don't think Joe would have actually hit Ali, but he was. It just goes to show how angry uh, Ali, uh, how he got under his skin. 
you know? Yeah, I mean, and that's legendary, right, for what, calling him a gorilla and things like that, really, to get under Well, that his... came a little later, yeah. that was yeah. Like before the thriller in Manila, right? That he... Yeah, well, Ali up the ante, you know, I mean, he was a genius at uh, self-promotion, you Selling, know. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, he, you know, everybody knows that. I mean, he's promoting not just his, his self, but his fights. Uh, Bobby Goodman, the publicist, uh, told me a, a funny story, I thought, down in Houston, uh, they were Ali was having a fight, and the ticket sales were lagging. And uh, Goodman told me that Ali was always coming into his motel room, saying, you know, with ideas about how to promote the fight and sort of pump the gate. And so one day, Ali comes in and says, "I got this great idea. What do you say we fake my kidnapping? We take me up to into the. Uh, uh, we'll take me up into." into the woods, put me in a cabin for three days, and then all of a sudden you'll find me. We'll get all the headlines, and the tickets will, you know, you know, really move. And Mike Goodman just laughed. He said, well, we can't do that. But that's sort of how Ollie, he had, he had this wonderfully creative mind. Now, but with the case of Joey, up the ante. You know, he soon realized that there was hay to be made by uh, making uh, this into a racial thing. You know, Joe was the white man's champion. You know, he was Ali was the crusader for the black cause, and he was really uh, it really turned into something ugly, and I think it was something that Ali later regretted. Well, I know he regretted it, but you know what was done was done, and uh, Joe, uh, you know, really embittered Joe. Did did he ever? Did Joe ever like? Probably not, but did he ever take a step back and sort of say, like, oh, you know, he was, that was just what Ali was. He was a promoter and he was promoting. He didn't, he wasn't, I'm maybe taking it a little bit too personal, or did he sort of die with the bitterness and the anger that kind of went away? Well, that, you know, Steve, that was a question I had for everybody I interviewed. And I tried to interview as many people who were still alive who, who were around Joe and knew him as well, you know, knew him intimately. And, um, you know, there are some of his old associates said Joe never forgave him, that it was always uh, wow. uh, something that uh, aided him and angered him and so forth. But other people who knew him just as well or better said that there was no, there was no, uh, nothing to that, that Joe had come to terms with it and uh, Joe didn't have hate in his heart. And uh, uh, so it was, a, it was an open question. Until late in my reporting, I came across uh, uh, an incident that occurred before the NBA all, the night before the 2000 was it two NBA All Star game in Philadelphia, uh, where Ali and Frazier had dinner in a private suite, Ali's private suite, and that was a story that really didn't get out at the time. And uh, and uh, if you read that, you'll see exactly. Uh, how the relationship between Ali and uh, uh, Frazier sort of, you know, reached a uh, where they there was a period of reconciliation at the end. You know, he's got an interesting career, Joe, in the sense that he has, you know, four professional losses and two of them to Ali and two of them are to Foreman. He did have the win against Ali, but never obviously didn't beat Foreman and retired after their second fight. Did right. he? Did he look at Foreman as? 
you know, did that haunt him that he never had the one win? Like, at least, yeah, he loses twice to him, but at least he can say, you know, I have the one win against him. Where Foreman is like the well, one guy I mean, he fought and didn't beat. Well, in Joe's mind, he beat Ali three times. <laughs> True. He never accepted. Right. I mean, they were the fights were so close, and uh, you know, at the very end in Manila, uh, in the third fight, you know, he just couldn't see out of either eye. I mean, uh, he wanted to continue, but his uh, his cornerman uh, manager Eddie Futch called it called a halt to it. You know, for fear that Joe would be severely damaged. Um, you know, Eddie had seen seven fighters killed in the ring during his lifetime, and uh, he didn't want to see that outcome befall Joe. Uh, Joe really carried a grudge against Eddie for a while. Uh, that was later reconciled as well. But, you know, uh, the three fights, you know, um, they fought 41 rounds and uh, pedal to the floor action, uh, just intense uh, laying of the, they laid their bodies on the line. I mean, there was such a small uh, margin between the two of them. Now, the Foreman fights, uh, the first fight where Joe lost his title, uh, Joe, uh, uh, was not, uh, he had reached the t- top of the, you know, the pinnacle of his career by beating Ali and he was just not the same when he fought Foreman, uh, two years later. Uh, he had gotten involved with his singing career. That was a, a rather a large distraction. Um, you know, traveling nightclubs, he kind of had a restless, uh, way about him. You know, he really couldn't sit still. And, you know, uh, when he got to Jamaica for the Foreman fight, you know, he was, he was not, uh, he was not sharp, uh, add to the fact that Foreman was much larger, uh, and that the styles that the two had, that Joe was not suited to fight Foreman, uh, given the, the style, their two styles, um, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't, you know, Joe was limited by his size. He was you know, kind of a, uh, for a heavyweight, he was on the small side. And, uh, but you know what? He never backed up. He never took a backward step in the ring. Uh, and it just wasn't in his, in his personality. And I think a lot, I think his fans, that's one of the things that people were sort of gravitated to him by. Yeah. It's interesting with, with boxing. I mean, if you lose your focus at all or your drive at all, like you kind of saying, you know, when you start thinking about other things, like we've seen it, we've seen it happen. That's kind of what happened to Tyson, right? He even admits in his book that he wasn't training the same, he wasn't focused the same when he lost to Douglas. He wasn't prepared for that fight, and even though we never would have believed it at the time, he wasn't prepared, and that means you know he got knocked out. And I think that's even what happened to like Ronda Rousey, different sport, admittedly, but once her, you know, plate got filled up with other things from her celebrity, you know, she started to lose. Yeah, well, if you're the champ, it, yeah. Well, as you know, when you're the champ, there are a million things pulling at you and tugging at your attention and, and so forth. Uh, suddenly you have all this money. Suddenly everybody wants you on television. Suddenly, uh, you know, you're asked to do guest appearance in nightclubs and, you know, the light the nightlife beckons, you know. And uh, that was true of Tyson and uh, it was true of Joe and it's true just about of every champion. Um, you know, it's very it's it's very hard to remain focused once you've reached your goal which is to be champion after that uh 
this, you know, it's it's very hard to 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 stay that uh, uh, intense. Train is hard. Uh, work yourself into that kind of frenzy, and you know, kind of controlled frenzy that you need to uh, to uh, to to win. Um, that's why you know people at the, uh, didn't think that the Manila fight was going to be much of a fight. Both they, the thinking was that both fighters were were uh, over the hill, uh, or at least in in some decline. And uh, but uh, interestingly enough, their styles made for for a great fight, even then. And uh, you know, one of the greatest fights. Yeah, I mean, what did Ali said it was the closest to death he's ever known, or something like that. That's right, closest yeah. thing to dying that he knew of. Uh, and uh, you know, he was uh, there was thought that he wasn't going to come out for the fifteenth round, and he would have quit and, uh, if Joe hadn't quit. Now, I don't believe that. I I know a lot of respected journalists and observers think that's the case, and Ali uh, sort of indicated that later uh, in life that he, he would have quit if Joe hadn't. But I don't think in, in the moment that ex- that actually would have happened. I think Ali's trainer, uh, Angelo Dundee, would have uh, would have pushed him out for the final round. Um, but he certainly took a beating, Ali. Uh, the sports... Fa- oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to say, a few hours later, they had, both of the fighters had you know showed up at parties Ali could barely move. Joe was down on the dance floor singing, you know, uh, you know, his R and B songs. So, um, you know, Ali took a fierce, fierce beating that night. The sportscasters are here with uh, Mark Cram Jr. His book, Smoking Joe: The Life of Joe Frazier, uh, is available now wherever you purchase books. Uh, great cover, uh, looks fun, looks inviting. It's a great read. Uh, let me ask you this: I always think about the scene in, in Coming to America where they're in the barber shop and all the guys are um you know talking about who the greatest boxer of all time was and they're you know they're going around and I think that's what, one of the great things is about boxing is is, is that debate where, where does Joe Frazier stand what what's ultimately what was his legacy where does he rank in the pantheon of heavyweight fighters well that's a I think everybody would answer that question uh differently in the sense of uh you know, it's very hard, in my view, Steve, to move athletes around in time. You know, we hear the discussion, was Henry Aaron a better home run hitter than Babe Ruth? Or or, or how would, uh, 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 you know, Babe Ruth been today? You, you, can't, you can't move really athletes around in time. I mean, how would Joe Frazier have done against Jack Dempsey? Well, in his time, Jack Dempsey was a was a was a great champion but it's hard to know how he would be today so you know it's very hard to uh um to uh answer that question historically however in the 60s and 70s which i regard as the golden age of the heavyweights you'd have to put joe uh number two behind ali uh because uh you know ali beat him twice but those two were far ahead of uh, of uh, uh, the others of that era. Now I know that Foreman beat Frazier twice, but I think for sure drama, the two Ali Frazier fights were uh, 
uh, head and shoulders above anything else, or the three, two of the three. And the other thing is that, um, um, you know, that Joe was, uh, um, you know, he did so much with the body he was given um, that, uh, you know, I'd have to place him, you know, very much in the, very much in the uh, conversation, uh, uh, top five, top ten, you know, it's the debate that will never be solved. Always be, uh, always be a name or two to throw out at the uh, barber shop. Uh, the book again. Oh, sure. Well, yeah. that's why. <laughs> that's 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 what the that's what the charm of sports is, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, again, the book is called Smoking Joe: The Life of Joe Frazier. It's the number one new release in boxing right now on Amazon, and you can get it in hardcover, uh, even audio CD, which I love, uh, audio book, of course, and for Kindle or iPad, all those different formats are available uh, for the book. Um, anything yeah, else? The, uh, the, the audio uh, uh, version of the book, the guy did a terrific job reading it, uh, James Foey. Uh, he did like any normal day as well, I and mean, he did a, Really fine job with uh, with the Fraser book. People love audiobooks. They kind of put me to sleep, though, for whatever reason. Do they? Yeah, yeah. I, I I like want to embrace them, but then I listen and I just fall asleep. Well, I, I know they've become very popular, and uh, some of them are quite well done. I, yeah. I, and I really am uh, grateful of the job that uh, James did with with this one. So, um, yeah, lots of formats. Um, um, you know, so I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate this. What's next? Any idea? What's next? Well, I have a few ideas percolating. It's hard to know. Yeah. Um, uh, really, uh, you know, I sure, I sort of take my time to sort of, uh, figure out, you know, uh, you know what these, because when you choose a book subject, you're going to be with it for a couple of years. Right. So you have to be really sure. Uh, what you're getting involved with. So nothing uh, immediate, but uh, I think, you know, I have something on maybe a non-sports book, actually. Yeah, I think Jane Jane Levy told us she spent eight years on the Babe Ruth book. Um, Was it eight years? Eight years, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I did did Joe and two. (laughs) Let's get you out of here on this. Um, If you didn't have to worry about the balance of the subject you're willing to spend that time on and will it sell and pitching to publish. If you could just write any book, is there like a number one on your bucket list of books to read, even if no one would buy it (laughs) or maybe they would, you know, I don't know, but is there like one that, you know, you'd love to do before you die? Uh, geez, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I really couldn't say. I mean, if it were just, um, um, uh, you know, I, I just don't know what I would, you know, I'm a huge Baltimore Oriole fan from the 60s and, you know, I, what have you. And maybe I would do uh, the Brooks Robinson story. I don't okay. know. I mean, <laughs> but, you know, I, I would never do it. But, but uh, you know, that was certainly... Uh, a uh, enjoyable time in my life uh, following those teams. They really, they really showed, you know, watching them day in and day out, really what excellence was all about, uh, which I think is the nature, which I think people kind of miss the point in sports. You know, they, they're always worrying about who's going to be in the Super Bowl and who's going to be, 
the World Series champion. But, you know, a well-played game, uh, 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 you know, athletes who show us, who give us examples of what excellence looks like, I think, really serves a great social value. It certainly did in my life. Yeah, you know, I've been a Saints fan since I was seven years old, and since they've won the Super Bowl, they've lost three playoff games that got names, which, you know, usually if you lose a game and they name it, it's bad news. Uh, but yeah. I remember after the um, 49ers game, which is called the Catch 3 um, in the yeah. 2011 playoffs, I remember just sitting down after and kind of accepting it like, well, you know what? That was a classic. That was just a classic. Yeah, and if yeah. we had to lose a classic, that's the way you want to go out, right? Now, I this mean, last you, year, not so that, much, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I uh, uh, I know the Orioles lost the, the 69 World Series to the Mets. You know, I was about... 11 or 12 at the time I was in tears but you know what that whole year I'd seen them play you know night in and night out on you know I went to many games myself and what a what a great year it was you know what a you know watching these guys play and how they played together you know how they played as a team and you know I think that's really we're missing the point if we turn it into a zero-sum game you know I hear you one last time, the book is called Smoking Joe, The Life of Joe Frazier by Mark Cram Jr. Mark, I'm going to be keeping my fingers crossed um, that I'm going to go to a movie one day and see a trailer for like any normal day of the movie. Okay. Um, thanks all so right. much for all, all the right. time and for doing this. All right. Thank you so much. Thank have you. A, have a great day. Bye. Bye-bye. I would like to thank the great Mark Cram Jr. for being on the podcast today. I also want to thank Ben Ryder. Don't forget you can find this episode of the podcast and all episodes of our fine show on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can email me to sportscasters at gmail.com. And, of course, you can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever podcatchers are catching podcasts. Can't fail to mention my good buddy Peter Winson and his podcast, Greetings from Allentown. Uh, For more information on Greetings from Allentown, you can find that at GF Allentown Pod. Uh, Peter and I host a sweet little podcast called the Adams Division Podcast. Uh, We got a sweet new logo and a new episode, which is on Peter's feed uh, for... Greetings from Allentown, and it's also located uh, at Place to Be Nation, uh, the Place to Be Nation flagship podcast. I've been on that three times now. Uh, I was just on a couple episodes ago talking about, I believe, the September 1989 house show at Madison Square Garden. Really a sweet show. Uh, if you want to check that out, find out more. It's at Place Number Two B Nation on Twitter, I believe. Uh, or just you know go to place to be nation.com and you can find out more information there uh, Justin and Scott are always great to me uh, some really fine people there I want to thank them uh, for hosting the Adams division podcast or Peter and I oh what else do I want to plug here 
that's it, I guess, for the plugs. Let's keep them short and simple because I want to go to one last thing and I want to talk about a few different things. And the first thing I want to do is I want to talk about my friend Adrian Dater. Uh, Adrian is the GOAT of Colorado Avalanche beat writing. Uh, he's been covering the Colorado Avalanche before they were the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, and he's done the job at the Denver Post or whatever that paper was called. And he's done the job writing about hockey uh, nationally for Sports Illustrated and Bleacher Report. And he worked for a couple seasons on a little startup, um, which, geez, I can't even think of the name of it. Who cares? He's not there anymore. Uh, he's doing something really bold and brave, and I'm proud of him. And he has his own website, uh, coloradohockeynow.com. Uh, you can go to at colhockeynow on Twitter. Uh, you subscribe for just a few dollars to this website. Uh, premier coverage of the Avalanche from Dater. He's the editor in chief. It's part of a bigger, um, a bigger network. I think they have Pittsburgh and Boston. I think they've started out with, uh, and that'll continue to grow. And if you like the Colorado Avalanche at all, this is where you go to find out that information. It's ColoradoHockeyNow.com and at ColHockeyNow. Uh, I know that sounds like a plug, and it is, but I want to talk about Adrian because he's a guy who can be a little bit misunderstood, but I know the guy, um, Adrian, and you know he was on this show a couple times, and I think he kind of liked the work, and I knew he was looking to do a podcast, and I reached out to him, and I said, let's do something together in the fall. Let's do a podcast together. You know, let's let's do this, and he was all in, and then think we were set to record and he's just like you know what i can't do it and he had some anxiety about it and we talked and i think we just made a connection and i said look i got your back let's just do this together because i know we can do a great job and i meant it you know and i said it that day that i had his back uh, because i can be you know a lot of things but one thing i am is loyal to people i care about and i care about adrian he's a great dude and i get really frustrated i want to fight uh, with people on the internet when they say things about him um, because they're wrong. They, they're they people who don't know Adrian. Has he made a mistake or two? Probably. Who hasn't? You know, uh, no, n- none of them are felonies. You know, none of them were even misdemeanors. None of them were crimes at all. They're just mistakes. Uh, but this is a guy who's a good father and a husband and someone who works his ass off to provide for his family. And he's a caring guy who cares about me. When I'm in the hospital, he calls me or he texts me to make sure I'm okay. You know, and we're just two dudes from opposite ends of the country, by the way, who've never even met in person because he dated or jinxed me when he was here last year. You know, but he's he's my guy for life. And if you have any interest in the Avalanche site, please sign up. And by the way, if you're not interested in subscribing, you can still go to ColoradoHockeyNow.com and put money in his tip jar. Uh, he uses 95% of that money for his travel expenses for covering the avalanche on the road. And then he uses the other 5% to donate money at a food bank in his town uh, near call, near Denver, obviously. Uh, but this is just a good dude. And I wanted to take a couple minutes to say, if you if your opinion of, his, of him is that he's not a good dude, you're wrong. And uh, a lot of people, I'm going to talk in a second about the way people talk on the internet and I hate it. And one thing people say all the time that I hate is, oh, that's not a good hill to die on. Well, I'll tell you what, the Adrian Dater Hill, I'll die on that one. Okay, because that's a good dude. 
and I stand by Adrian. And I'll be be there with him through thick and thin. Uh, and I'm really excited. And, and in the fall, if I'm feeling well, I think I might produce his Avalanche podcast for the website. And we might run the sportscasters on there. We haven't talked about it, but I'm sure I'm going to be a part of this site somehow because I care about this guy as much as I believe in him. By the way, he believes in me, and I appreciate that a lot. Uh, so I wanted to get that uh, out there before the break. Uh, the other thing, since I mentioned it, I'll go with that second. I want to do a one last thing about how much I hate the things that people say on the internet that they, first of all, would never say in real life, and second of all, are just such sheep and followers. Now, I'm a little nervous that this is too much of a stolen bit from our friend Jim Florentine and his podcast, Comedy Metal Midgets. Um, but man, do I hate it. I hate things like my number one most hated thing is when someone asks for a recommendation and they end it with, and go. Fuck you, and go. Have you ever called someone up and say, hey, um, I know you're an expert on chicken wings and buffalo. Can you give me a good place to eat chicken wings? All right, go. You don't say that to people. Oh, I can't stand it. I want to do this. I'm collecting them, and I'm on the fence on whether I should actually do it. Uh, if you think I should, you can uh, send your most hated things people say on the internet, the sportscasters at gmail.com or at sports underscore casters. I know it's a little bit of a ripoff of Jim Florentine, but we'll call it a tip of the hat, and we'll do it sometime uh, when we get back from break. Uh, tonight was my last night out with the ileostomy bag, and my brother Anthony and I went to see Better Than Ezra at Art Park, and Art Park is a beautiful concert venue. It was a beautiful summer night, and I just want to say real quick that Better Than Ezra is the best rock and roll band you don't listen to. I know you heard good and you probably heard desperately wanting and you probably haven't thought about it much since the 90s, but they're still touring and they're still making music and they're unbelievable performers. They have great songs. The last two hits they put out, singles they put out, Grateful and Crazy Lucky are both fantastic. They played them both tonight. Great songs. Man, Kevin Griffin is an unbelievable performer. Their drummer is a great New Orleans musician. They're just good dudes, good music. Great time. I think I counted. I've seen them seven times now. I hope I see them 17 more. It was a great night out. They were awesome. Thanks to Anthony for lugging me around. I appreciate that. All right. One last thing for sure. The very last of the last things. An update on my health. So back in April, as I explained on the podcast when we returned, uh, I had my third bowel resectioning. And before we did the resectioning, the surgeon told me that he might put in an ileostomy bag uh, so that I could heal better Um, instead of attaching, uh, reattaching the the colon and the bowel um, where there was swelling that he wouldn't do it and I would use the bag. And he said about two months. Uh, And on Thursday, July 11th, it's finally time to get it out. It was more like three or almost four months that I had it. Uh, but it's finally coming out on Thursday, and I, I couldn't be more excited. Look, at if you live your life with a bag, God bless you because it is hard. It is really hard to have, uh, having to have the traveling nurses. And a shout-out to my and Beth, who was amazing. I went and bought her a gift card to 
Amazon and a thank you card tonight since tomorrow is our last time together. Uh, but if if you just having the nurses and the thing leaks and you got to empty it and you got to clean it and it stinks and oh, it's been a nightmare and I can't wait to get rid of it. But man, it's hard to wake up from surgery, especially the 10th time because the drugs don't work as good and the scar tissue builds up and it's painful. And I think I talked pretty openly about how when I woke up from the surgery in April, I I cried like the first 20 hours. I mean, when I started to feel better, I apologized to my roommate and said, look at man, I'm sorry. I had to be the most annoying roommate in the world and I know it, but man, does it hurt? And I'm not looking forward to waking up. You know, that anesthesia is great. They give you beautiful drugs and they put you out, you know, but that, Split second before you can't help but just hope that you wake up, that nothing goes wrong, that this isn't the last time you close your eyes. And, you know, especially now that I have a daughter, you know, it feels like the stakes are higher. And I always tell my mom, you know, that they can't scare me, but I'm scared. If I'm being honest, I'm I'm scared. This is, it's scary stuff. You know, this is my 10th surgery and I'm 38 years old. Not even 40 yet. I've had 10 surgeries. And it's hard. It is hard. It And it gets harder every time, right? It's harder to... It's harder for the doctor to cut me open because of the scar tissue. And it's harder to close it. And I get an infection every time. And they have to reopen it. And it hurts. And pain medication is great. But it doesn't work as well as it once did. Because you start to develop a tolerance and... Apparently, I'm really good at developing a tolerance. And man, it's just, it's tough. And, and look, at one thing I would never do is complain, right? Because there's so many people out there that have it worse than me. You know, I see these Facebook groups, with little kids with cancer, and just my heart it just breaks for them. So one thing I'm not doing right now is complaining. I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest that this stuff is just not easy. And I'm here for anyone who's going through it. You know, my TMs are open. My phone number is 716-601-8187. Call me anytime. Right? If you're going through something, if you never had a surgery, you're having surgery for the first time, you're having Crohn's or having bowel issues, I'm basically an expert at this point. And I'm here for anyone who listens to the show. And that's the way I've always lived my life, right? Being here for for you. You know, being here for my brothers, being here for my my family, my my wife, my daughter, my friends. And I like it that way. Um but I need I, I need everyone right now. Um uh because I'm just like I said, I'm a little bit scared. I'm scared of I'm scared of the worst scenario, and I'm a, I'm scared of the best case scenario. You know, I'm afraid that I'm not strong enough. You know that I don't have another recovery in me. You know, and and sometimes it's just it's just your mind, my mind playing a trick on me. You know, because the other side of that is sometimes I can be very confident and feel like again, like they can't hurt me, they can't scare me. 
even if it's the worst 24 hours of my life after, then there's another day after that. And I start to get better and better and better. And this bag is going to be gone. Hallelujah. This bag is going to be gone. And I'm going to get better. And that's why I, I, like, again, I'm not complaining because I know I'm going to get better. Temporarily, at the very least, when I had this surgery in 2003, I got better for 10 years until I had my second resectioning in 2013. And I was better for six years before I had my resectioning this year in 2019. So I'll get better. And while I hope that I don't ever have to have another resectioning, I know I, I know I might. I know I might. And I just pray that when that happens, I don't end up with a permanent bag. Because that's now on officially on the list of things I'm scared of. Colon cancer and a permanent bag. Because I just don't know how I live. And again, I think I said this to Tammy. Like I think you fear it. You can never live that way. You say that to yourself. But eventually it becomes your life. You get used to it. You live with it. I had a nurse actually who has had one since 1982. So that's almost my whole life. That's like 37 years. And you know, she seemed fine. <laughs> She's made it 37 years with it. But I hope I never have to go through that. You know. But um, look at I have this microphone. So I thought I'd vent my frustrations a little bit. My fears a little bit. Be honest with you guys about who I am and where I am in my life. Uh, obviously, the podcast is going to have to go away for a few weeks. I hope to come back sometime in August as we get ready for football season. And just think about my daughter for me, if you can. Say a prayer for her, too, and my wife. Because this is really hard on them. Uh, especially Paula, who is not. She used to having her daddy with her every day. You know, which is such a blessing in our life. As hard as this is on me, you know, one of the positives is I get to be home with Paula every day. I get to take care of her every day and she doesn't have to go to daycare or anything like that, which can be tough on a kid. Um, but I like to think I'm a good dad. I try hard at it anyway. Um, and it hurts me that I hurt my daughter a little bit. Um, because she just wants to play outside with her boys and with her cousin Gregory and you know what no two year old should have to worry about their dad and how he's feeling uh, but she's my little mini nurse and she takes care of me and I love her for it um, and look and I'm going to be okay I'm maybe being a little dramatic right now uh, but I wanted to be honest with everyone about where I am and how I feel right now and how things are going uh, for me. So um, thank you for listening. I'm going to be okay. And uh, the sportscast will be back in a few weeks. 